James chapter 1, we're actually going to be looking at the first eight verses together this morning. We find there, he says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count on all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this morning we are starting a new series in James, and I am really excited about it because uh, it seems like almost more than any other book in the Bible, James has practically helped me as a Christian in knowing uh, how it is to live this life of following Jesus. Um, James is widely considered by so many to be the most practical book of the Bible. In fact, it's so practical, it talks so much about how we should live and how we should act, that some have argued that it shouldn't be in the Bible, that it's not like grace-filled enough. But uh, there, is, there is little doubt that it is so authoritative that it, is, uh, that it is a book that should be included in Scripture, absolutely. James was written by Brother of Jesus. Um, it was the earliest uh, written book of the New Testament. So James wrote this letter to the church before the gospel accounts were even written down, which is why he doesn't reference back to the gospel specifically, the things that they're said. Um, the book of James was written before Paul wrote many of his epistles, or wrote any of his epistles, and so James isn't talking as much about theology and engaging with some of the things that Paul said or referencing those things either. Uh, what James is doing is he is, uh, he's writing a letter that comes across more as a sermon to the entire church at this time, all of the people who have chosen to follow Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, uh, people of all um, ethnicities and um, levels of wealth, people that live in a variety of different places even. Now, the Old Testament is filled with very detailed descriptions of how a person is supposed to be if they're one of God's people how to live, how to act, what to eat, how to worship. There's so much detail for these things. And then when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, he um, really seems to almost go out of his way to not give lists and rules and, and the details of, of these things that you're supposed to do. And, and on top of that, it seems as though many of the people that Jesus had the hardest time with was the people who were the ones with all the rules, the people who were the best behaved. And so the question that people who follow Jesus had to wrestle with was, how do you actually live out a faith in Christ? I mean, how do you believe in this God who apparently hasn't changed what he says is good and what is evil? Uh, a God who, okay, if we're not good with him because of how hard we've worked at it or because of our, our efforts or our merit. It's, it's grace that saves us, 
then what does it look like to actually live in light of that? Um, and, and furthermore, if the best behaved people were the ones that Jesus was mad at, then should we be well behaved people or does it not matter? Uh, these are the questions that James is answering with this book. He is telling people, here's how you ought to live. Um, it, it is, as a result, the most practical book in the Bible, and it is the only example in the New Testament of what we call wisdom literature. And wisdom literature, uh, there's more of it in the Old Testament, but wisdom literature is, is parts of the Bible that speak to how someone ought to think and how they ought to be. How ought you, how should you be? And because of this, wisdom literature is meant to challenge you, your assumptions, the way that you live, the choices that you make. Wisdom literature isn't really just supposed to fit nicely into each one of our lives on any given day. It's not like chicken soup for the soul, where you like have your version and you read it, and then it feels good, and you feel good, and everyone feels good at the end of the day. Uh, wisdom literature is something that, as you read it, you probably often should feel corrected by it because the assumption is we're not necessarily always doing what we ought to be doing. Jesus says that the goal of our life is faith in God, that God created us to depend on him. And so faith, meaning trust in God, in all things, through all things, for all things, is the goal of the Christian's life. Faith is what Adam and Eve lacked. Faith is what people like Abraham and Moses, people like the disciples showed. And even though all kinds of people claim to have it, most don't have it. So James says, well, you'll know faith. You'll know it by the way that a person lives. And if someone says to me, um, well, my faith doesn't necessarily show in how I live. My response to you, says James, is you can see my faith by the way I live. How could your faith not be shown that way? So, some people have said that James is a legalistic book, uh, but it's not. Uh, with all the effort and emphasis on how we should live, some people have said, isn't it legalistic to talk that much about that. And a book like this would be legalistic if you remove faith and belief, and it would be legalistic if James's argument was, if you do these things and live this way, you will be saved. But what James is saying to us is that because you are saved, you then should live this way. You then should do these things. These things themselves will not save you. These are the life of a person who's been saved. And so he begins with this. Count it all joy, my brother, when you meet trials of various kinds. The very first things James tells us in how to live this Christian life is what to do when life is hard. Does this make James the most negative person ever? Does James need some advice on how to uh, write a compelling introduction or maybe how to hook your audience? Clearly he does because he begins with the very topic no one wants to even think about, much less talk about. But this is the beginning 
of understanding how to actually live. Life is filled with trials. Life is filled with pain. Life is filled with suffering. These things are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. They form the backdrop of much of life, it seems. They're not something that we should be surprised by, but that we should expect. If there's any book in the New Testament that closely resembles James at all, it's 1 Peter, I think. And Peter talks about this when he talks about trials. He says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised because trials are inevitable. They're going to come. They're going to happen. We know this because we we want nothing to do with them, and yet there they are constantly ruining everything that we're working and living for. And so instead of being shocked by them, instead of running away from them, we see them for what they are, what the Bible calls them, which is momentary afflictions. Once when I was in uh, college, Ellie and I were uh, coming back from a trip to, the, to see the Grand Canyon. And it was the middle of the night. We were driving back to Southern California. And we were driving around this mountain road. And we turned a corner, and right in front of me was a rock in the middle of the road about the size of a football. And I saw this rock, and I was quickly approaching it. And then this thing that my dad had said to me many times popped into my head. That's right, dads. It works. Don't swerve. And so I didn't. I ran right into this rock. And in doing so, I destroyed Ellie's front left tire. Uh, The tire blew, the wheel broke, um, and we had to pull over, and we had to put on the spare and drive the rest of the way home to California uh, in with this spare. Now, uh, for about three hours after that, we were in nothing but desert with no cell phone reception, and there were no other cars or any, anything that we saw after that. So we had to go 55 miles an hour, which is the recommended speed limit for driving on a donut. And we had to go that, that slow. And as a result, we didn't get home for like, we got home like three or four hours later than we were supposed to. And when we got home, Ellie's dad found out, of course, and he had to buy four new tires, and then he had to buy four new wheels for this car. It was in huge inconvenience. But what was the alternative? Driving off a cliff? One was a momentary affliction, one that ruined our day, not one that ruined our life. These things that we face... They are inevitable, momentary afflictions. And if we constantly are swerving around them every time they come, we're going all over the place and ultimately causing greater destruction than if we hit them. But why do we swerve when we see these things, when trials come, if they're inevitable? Why? Because they hurt. They're painful. This is called suffering because we suffer, because they're dangerous. I mean, what are we really 
want in life, right? What are we living for? What are we working for? What do we want for our kids, for our families, for our friends? What do we want for our communities? What do we want for the whole world, whether we like the people in it or not? The very thing that we just spent like a whole month celebrating, joy. We want joy. We want to be happy. We want happiness. And what is the enemy of joy? What is the enemy of happiness? Trials. Suffering. And so the last place on earth that you would ever expect to find joy is the very thing that robs you of joy. It's the enemy of it. But this is where James starts. By telling us that we should count it all joy when we face trials. One author named David Hubbard says, Just as the refrigerator is the last place we would check to see how the roast is cooking, trials are the last place we would look to find joy. And if, you've, if you're really familiar with James, then this isn't how you see it, really. You just go, yeah, joy and trials. I'm familiar with that. But if you're new to James, you hear these words of James and you say, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. That you would look to the very place that takes away your happiness to find something like joy. Why is this? Why does it seem so opposite? Well, because if you believe that this life is all that there is, then happiness really is the best that you can do. And if that's true, then suffering is your enemy. Pain and suffering literally ruin what you're building with your life. They destroy the things that you have built. They take away what you have been accumulating. They can only rob you and leave you with less than they came with. Trials will always cost you if what you want in your life is to be happy. But if you're in Christ, then your life isn't lived for that reason. It isn't just to be happy, it's to be, the Bible says, conformed to the image of Christ. That's why that's what you're living for. That is the goal of your life. Uh, every day that you live, if you're a follower of Jesus, every day that you're alive after that is a day that you are alive so that you can be conformed more to the image of Christ, so that you can be holier than you were yesterday. That's why you're here. And if this is your aim then it turns out that the one thing that you cannot avoid is actually the most important thing that you will ever face. Because trials, it turns out, are more valuable to the life of the believer than anything else. James says we consider these trials a great joy. Why? Because of the value that is in them. Trials are valuable. Trials matter a lot. They mean a lot. And it's because of what they do. He goes on and he says, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And if you let steadfastness have its full effect, then you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says that trials are a test in our faith. But not just the kind of test that's like an exam or, or, or a a driver's test, he says it's, it's a test that produces something. It's a process. It's something that actually changes the person that undergoes it. The word that he uses here is doikaimion, for test. 
And this word, it's the word for uh, testing something to determine if it's real or if it's authentic, if it's a fake or if it's a real. It's also the process of taking something that's partially valuable or impure and purifying that thing. Getting rid of the parts that you don't want so that you're left with nothing but the good. We call this refining. And the people in the early church, they were very familiar with this idea of refining. They were familiar, they would most likely associate it with metal. And there were people that worked with metal and the refiner would use fire. They would put the substance into the fire and the fire would heat it to the point of all of the impurities either uh, being uh, sort of disintegrated and eaten away or they'd rise to the surface and you could scoop them off. It's called dross. And then what you have left is more valuable than when you started. And a good silversmith, a good goldsmith knows exactly how long to keep this thing in the fire so that it does not destroy the valuable thing itself. Trials are valuable because trials make you valuable. They actually make us more valuable than we were when we started. He's saying that these trials have the power to do something in us, in our lives. Something we need if we're going to end up as anything of value. They refine us. We are this sort of raw material before them of little actual use to anyone. But when refined, we are something of tremendous value. We live in this world that is filled with people. Like, what is it, like seven billion people now in the world? I mean, we have a lot of people in the world. And if people, we believe, are created in the image of God, are valuable and significant inherently, then that means that we are literally bursting at the seams with this incredibly valuable commodity. And yet, when you look at our world, it's a mess. It's always been a mess. It's a disaster. And it doesn't seem like more people make it better either. Why is that? Well, because we live in a world that is bursting at the seams with raw material. And the truth is that the majority of people, the majority of us, would prefer to remain unrefined. And do. And the result is a world full of this unrefined resource that is not valuable. And can't be used to actually make it better than it is the way that it should be. Because the process of refining, of testing, and of purifying is painful and hard, most are simply content to remain the way that we are. But James says, it's coming no matter what. You can run, but you can't hide. These trials make you valuable. Now, maybe you haven't suffered a lot yet in life. Maybe for some reason you think, God's decided I don't need to. It's coming. <laughs> Maybe you have had a relatively easy life still, and, 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 you, and you think, well, that's because I am already refined. I am, I am 
wise enough, I'm disciplined enough, I, I've learned enough, I've done enough, I've grown enough that I guess God doesn't need to give me trials to change me and, and refine me that, that I'm okay. I've been spared the refining that James says that we need. You say, surely people need to be refined, but not me. Yet the person who thinks this has never opened up a Bible because all of the people in the Bible that God seems to say are pretty valuable, that he seems to want to use, he first brings through a fire to refine them. Jesus himself suffers. The truth is that without trials, you will not know if your faith is worth anything at all. You simply won't. And that's something that has to sink in because we hate that. The fact that you can do so much in an effort to have a real faith. You could learn so much. You could serve so much. You could sacrifice so much. You could worship so much. You can discipline yourself so much. But it's not until you suffer It's not until real trials come and until you embrace them that your faith will actually be one of substance. Until then, your faith is not valuable. It is just words and habits. Until you are steadfast, your faith isn't worth anything. This is what James is saying. And this is why trial matters and why it's a joyful thing when it happens in our lives. So we know these things are coming. We know they're good things because of what they'll do in our life. And when it does, we handle them with joy. At least that's the idea that James is talking about. So what do we do? We embrace them. This is not easy. We respond to trials in so many different ways. We, for the most part, we just try to cope with trials when they come. I mean, the the first thing we do is we try to avoid them at all costs. I mean, avoid them at all costs. We swerve all over the place as much as we can. We literally live our lives with the goal of avoiding suffering. And if you're like, no, not me, I'm a disciplined person, right? Okay, fine. You avoid some, you, you take on some suffering, so that your life is better, so that you will have less suffering later. Haha, <laughs> see what I did there? You're still guilty. <laughs> most of us spend most of our time desperately avoiding suffering at all costs. And then when it does come and we can't stop it, what do we do? We cope. We say, I just have to get through it. I'll put my head down and I'll do whatever I do to get through it. Some people eat, some people drink, some people get high, some people go to sleep for weeks. Some people tell everyone that they're suffering so that they can help you cope with it all the time. Some people deny it. Some people say, nah, stuff doesn't really bug me, stuff doesn't really get to me, I'm just kind of apathetic, I don't really deal with those kinds of feelings or those kinds of things. But the thing that we don't typically do is we don't embrace it. We don't actually say, well, here we go. I'm going to take this thing on. When we embrace trials, we are changed by them. 
We become steadfast. We persevere. We will have patience. We will have strength. We will ultimately have joy. And so he goes on to talk about what happens when a person does seek to find joy in their trials. He says that we'll need this thing called wisdom. The first thing you'll realize if you try to make any sense out of what's going on in your life is that you can't make sense out of what's going on in your life without something that only God can give you, which is wisdom. So if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God and he'll give generously to all without reproach, meaning he won't keep score, he won't keep track, he won't remember how much he gave you, he'll just keep giving you more wisdom when you ask. But when you ask, ask and believe and don't doubt that that is what he does. He gives it to you. Wisdom is what we need in trials. Trials require wisdom. And wisdom is, it's truth. It doesn't bother with how things, how we want things to be, how we wish things were. Wisdom deals with the way things are. Wisdom is uh, practical. Wisdom is timeless. One of the reasons I was excited to do this series was because a couple of years ago, Florence and Leroy Myers invited our family over for dinner to their house. And um, after dinner, Leroy, who's in his 90s, said, um, took me into his study and he said, uh, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to be around, I think, for too much longer, which I don't think is true. I think he will be around longer than me. Um, and uh, so feel free to take a look at these books and, you know, if there's any that you want to take, you know, and he was a pastor for many years and so lots of books. And I grabbed a bunch of books, and a bunch of them were on James, and, and I had them for a while, and I was excited to kind of look at these. And so a couple weeks ago, I sat down, and I, I started reading through them, and there was this one book in particular that I just was personally getting a lot out of. I was like, this really speaks to, like, the things that are going on in my life right now. And there was a name written on the inside of the book. It was a woman's name, and I thought, oh, this is probably like his daughter's book, right? And so I went and I took, brought it to him one day, and I was like, look, it says Rachel Myers. Leroy, this is, like, is this your daughter's? And he said, no, that was my mom's. That was my mom's book. And I'm, like, trying to do the math, and then I stop. I'm, like, this was your mother's book, right? And this book that I'm reading that is, is completely relevant to my life right now is a book that Leroy's mom read and really liked enough to pass on to her son, and he kept for all these years, because this is how wisdom works. It, it, is, it is timeless. It, it's why we still talk about the Bible now, because God's Word is timeless. God's Word matters still. So the point is, it's worth having, and trials require it. Wisdom is a lens that you need in order to see through this fog of trial that you're in, the suffering that you're in. Without it, you don't have a chance. And with it, James says you'll have all that you need. Wisdom tells you the what, the how, the why. It tells you all the stuff you would like to know when you're going through trials. What do I do? How do I deal with this thing? How do I keep moving forward? What do I need to hold on to and what shouldn't I be holding on to? We ask God, why am I facing this so much of the time? But do we ask God, like, why 
am I facing this? What are you wanting me to see in this? And what are you wanting other people to see in this as it's happening in my life? But the thing about wisdom, and here's the bad news, is that it doesn't just naturally come the longer you live life. Contrary to popular belief, you don't just automatically accumulate wisdom as you live. You have to actually seek wisdom, seek understanding, and you have to ask God for it. I mean, I've known some older people who are not particularly wise, and I have known some younger people who are unusually wise for their age. This is how it works, and so we ask God for it, but he says, when you ask God for it, when, you, when you're trying to embrace this suffering and you're asking God for this wisdom, I mean, this is, first of all, asking God for something when life is hard is not, like, that's not something we need to be reminded of. Like, in fact, if most of us were honest, then the, the, probably the one time that we ask God for things is when life is hard, right? If life's going well, we're kind of like, well, I'm assuming it's going well because God's good with me and I'm good with him, so we'll just kind of, you know, do our own thing. And then if it gets hard, then we're on our knees, right? God, end this, stop this, help me deal with this thing. Even some of the least spiritual and least religious people are, are led to God, led on their knees in times of suffering, especially when you are just feeling totally out of control of what's going on in your life. And so we don't need anyone to remind us to ask God for things when we're in trials. But what James says is he says, Ask God for wisdom. He doesn't say, pray to the God who gives generously to all without finding reproach and ask him to stop this trial. He doesn't say, pray to God and ask him to take me out of the fire and the flames. Ask him to take the pain away. Ask him, why would you ever allow such a thing in the first place? I mean, what kind of person can, when trials come, go before God and ask him for wisdom? to understand what's happening and to navigate it rather than to ask him to stop it. Wisdom isn't just a backup plan. It's not something that you try for when you've tried everything else. It's the first thing you try. It's what your conversations to God are actually supposed to be aimed at. When Paul talks in the New Testament about something he calls the thorn in his flesh, which is basically this mysterious thing that he struggles with for a long time. He says it's humiliating, it humbles him. The guy's life is pretty hard already, and it basically makes his life even harder. He, here's how he says how bad it is. He says, I asked God to remove it from me three times, and he didn't. Could you imagine if that was the rule? You got three asks, and then you were done asking? Like, Whoa, right? Like, you'd be very careful about those three asks. You're like, okay, we have a prayer service coming up. I'm going to save it for that one. That's a big one, right? Got like a Thanksgiving meal prayer. I'm going to throw one in there. I'm going to find a little kid, maybe pray with them when they're going to bed. That seems in a lot of the prayer pictures I see to be a, a big one. The angels are there at that time. Those are my three. Imagine if you only got three, and then you just accepted what was happening, because this is what Paul says. He says, I've asked God to remove this from me, and now I'm living with it. 
And now I'm believing that God wants to use it. And now I'm navigating it. And what I need from him more than anything is the help in doing that because I'm being refined through this thing. This is why we know what's wrong when some people say that God wants our life to be free from trials and suffering and that when we are in pain and when things are hard, only if we had enough faith that we would pray boldly in faith then he would heal us. This isn't a biblical view of how God handles suffering. Because people are continually coming to God in his word, and instead of asking him to just over and over again heal and solve and take things away, they are asking him for his will to be done in the suffering that's happening. And why does he say, why is he so adamant that he says, believe and don't doubt when you pray for wisdom? you ask God for wisdom, right? You come to church on Sunday, you ask God for wisdom, you open up your Bible, you read it, you talk to him, you pray, say, God, give me wisdom on Sunday. You drive to work on Monday, you listen to a podcast or something, and, and, and you're thinking about that all day. The next day, you're watching cable news, they're kind of telling you how everything is and what to think about the whole world. And, you know, the next day, you go talk to some of your friends about what's going on in your life, and you like these friends, they're your friends, because you know what they're going to tell you, and they always tell you good things, and they say things like, you don't need to deal with this, or don't worry about that, or let's just go party and not stress about it, right? Or you deserve better, or things like that. And the question is, and all of those things add up, where is wisdom on a scale with everything else in your life that is navigating you through this trial? I mean, how much do we maybe ask God for some help and then still go about as though we are completely helpless and lost, desperately needing every resource we can possibly get? What he says is, he says, God wants to take you somewhere. You are like a wave, like a tide that is coming into the shore. And when you realize that your life isn't really supposed to be just about happiness and joy all the time, but there's something like being conformed to Jesus that you're really living for, then as the wave, you begin to go where God wants you to go. But if you ask for the wisdom and you try to persevere and then you decide, no, I just want to get out of this again and I just care about other things and I just want to cope and I want to forget and I want to run away, then you go back. And, and God's bringing you here, but you keep going back and forth and your, your heart and your motives and your priority, the things you really want here are changing so much that you're like a wave in the middle of the ocean that's just being blown left and right. Maybe you try to do the right thing, but you then try to do everything else. And he says, that man is foolish, unstable in all he does. You will not ever have steadfastness. James says that real belief is asking God for wisdom and trusting that he will give that to you and continually asking him for wisdom with the same kind of passion that you would ask him to stop the pain. When we think about faith in God through trial, we think about people who will go to him all the time to stop the trial. They believe in God enough that he's going to do it. But what James is saying is someone who has faith in God is someone coming to God again and again saying, I believe, God, that you will begin to clear the fog of this world that I'm living in and I will start to see clearly. 
I mean, we have to stop talking about things like wisdom and perseverance and steadfastness as though they're common because they're not. Think about how many people you know who are really wise, really steadfast, really patient and long-suffering. It's not just words that you say. It's, it's the word that James is using here for wisdom. The definition is understanding and the ability to act wisely. So more than anything, he says wisdom is the way that a person sees the world. They're seeing clearer and clearer and clearer. They're as confused as everyone else is. To really live out a faith in Jesus is to be a person who thinks a lot and thinks hard about things. A Christian is someone who cares more about understanding what is going on than they do about controlling what is going on. Many people mistakenly think that faith is not asking questions. It's not wanting proof. It's not, uh, this isn't how Jesus describes faith. That's certainly not how James says to live. Faith is trying to understand how things can be the way that God says that they are. The faith to believe that if you could just stop for a second, if you could just stop putting all of your energy and effort into happiness and an easy life, that you might actually be changed, that you might be refined, that you might be changed into someone a little more like Jesus, that you might see more clearly, that you might ultimately be considered uh, richer for it, that you might experience joy. Faith is believing not that God will stop all the pain in life, believing that he can make you into somebody who isn't defeated by the pain in life. He can make you into someone who doesn't flinch, but instead remains steadfast because you know that these things are just momentary afflictions. Faith is one day having the wisdom to be able to say the thing that Paul said when he said, I consider it a privilege to be counted worthy of this kind of suffering from you. I was once talking to a woman years ago as a youth pastor. She was a mother, and she was in a marriage that was falling apart around her. Her husband was an alcoholic. He was addicted to pain medication, and he was beginning to be abusive to her and their daughters, and so she was leaving him, and they were probably going to get a divorce. And she was in my office uh, talking to me about it because her daughters were both in middle school. And she was just completely devastated. And it wasn't the pain of what she herself was going through. It was that she cared that her daughters were having to go through such a painful childhood and that this wasn't normal. She said, I just want them to have a normal life and they're not going to get to. Now, I, I don't often, when I'm talking to people have a really clear, immediate sense, like God wants me to say this thing. It might seem like that when I'm talking to you. I don't. But in this situation, I did. I, I felt that I was supposed to say to her in that moment, whatever you do, don't tell your daughters that their life is harder than everyone else's and that, and that this suffering isn't normal. 
There is nothing harder than talking about suffering in a Western, individualistic, modern, American, suburban, fairly comfortable culture. We have such a skewed perceptive of what suffering is and what normal is, and we're so desperate to really just experience what the people closest to us seem to have made out to be normal, that our biggest fear in life about suffering is that it will keep us from being able to have a normal life. What James is saying is that suffering is what's normal. And so I told this mother, I said, when things start to fall apart, people are hurting like your daughters. You're not necessarily to just lament and say, I'm sad because this isn't how it's supposed to be. Yes, of course, this isn't how marriage should be. This isn't how fathers should be. This isn't how things should end. But your job as their mother is not to protect them from all the pain and the suffering in this world. Your job is to walk through it with them. Your job is to help them embrace it and to grow through it. And I could say to her with confidence, I know lots of young people with a faith that would blow you away because of the suffering that they went through in their life. In fact, I can tell you that a young person is more likely to have a sincere faith after suffering than they are after a completely comfortable, safe life in the church. As a parent, I want more than anything for my children to live an easy and pain-free life. I don't want them to suffer. It kills me to see them in pain and to see them suffering. But I know, wisdom has shown me that trials and suffering are what will ultimately refine them. That it will change them and shape them and make them more valuable than all of the amazing and perfect Christmas mornings that I can fill up their life with. I want to read the words as we close to a hymn. How firm a foundation. It says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume me and thy gold to refine.